Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Andrew, as Gabe said, and uh, I actually am kind of home base for me as our Leewood campus uh, in the suburbs. And so I've been begging Gabe actually for a while to come preach here. Um, and he said, how about Labor Day? So I jumped all over it. And uh, no, I'm, I did. I, I mean that. Um, I'll get sarcastic later, but that wasn't sarcastic. Um, and I just want to affirm uh, what you guys are doing here. I, I mean, I've I, I already am jealous. Uh, I want to come here. So um, this is such a beautiful space and beautiful group of people. So I'm happy to be here. A little funny story about Gabe and I, since he he uh, opened the door to make fun of him. Um, he, we, we actually have known each other a long time. Um, Gabe and I went to seminary together in Chicago, and I was his RA when he first moved in. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he he came to seminary with this weird, he had this weird mustache. The first time I met him, he had this weird mustache. And he's been a weird guy ever since. Um, but I remember looking like, oh, it's going to be a long year. Um, but <laughs> no, Gabe and I became quick friends, and it's it's a blessing to work with him. Um, and you guys are blessed to have him here. I just want to affirm him there. Um, a little bit about me. I... Uh, my wife, Rebecca, and I, I really wish she could have been here, but we've got a, a two-month-old, so I just it wouldn't have gone well. But uh, she and I have been married now this summer four years. Uh, we celebrated our fourth anniversary. And uh, on our anniversary, actually had our second child born. So, um, and actually on that, so it's June 20th, and on that day is my, now my son's birthday, my anniversary, and my birthday. So all of that on June 20th. And uh, when I tell people that, they look at me like, well, you know which of those is going to get neglected from now on, right? Like, you know which one of those is pretty much dead forever. And I say, yeah, I know which one it is. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, enough about me. It's really good to be here. Uh, if you've been journeying with us this past, almost, I mean, since last January, basically, you know we have been working through the Bible as a church through the whole year and uh, preaching through it on Sunday mornings as well. And so you know today is, is special because today we meet Jesus, right? This is, if you've been with us, we've been in the Old Testament basically since January. And so today we meet Jesus, and uh, we actually are in Luke chapter 2. You just heard that read, which if it sounded familiar, it's because it's the most popular Christmas text uh, probably in, in the world. Um, Luke 2 is, is what everybody talks about around Christmas time. And uh, as I prepared for this Sunday, I, I thought it got me thinking about my Christmas memories. And um, one of my earliest Christmas memories uh, in the church, I, I was raised in the church until I was about nine. So one of my earliest church memories is Christmas Eve being in the, the star role of the nativity scene, right, for the whole church as sheep number one, which is actually a pretty important role. Um, and, uh, you know, I had one line. You can probably guess what it was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Took a little while, but you got it. Um, and uh, I remember... I remember crawling around at church on all fours, you know, on, this, on the stage, because that's what the sheep's supposed to do, in our manger. And uh, the three wise men were saying their lines, and Mary and Joseph and everybody. And uh, in the middle of all of us was this, you know, this, like, cheap wooden box and this plastic baby doll who was Christmas Jesus. And uh, I, remember, I, saw, I, I remember thinking two things, actually. The first was I, I wanted a Game Boy for Christmas that year, um, which tells you how old I am. Because there are people young in here that are like, what's a Game Boy? Um, I guess it would be a DS now. I don't know. Um, but anyway, the second thing I thought about was, I was thinking about this fake plastic Jesus. And I thought, uh, for a person uh, who's supposed to be the reason for the season, right, 
Uh, Jesus sure doesn't say or do very much during this whole Christmas shindig. <laughs> and uh, he looks pretty feeble, and he looks pretty useless even, right, in this little wooden box that we put him in once a year. And uh, Christmas Jesus, as I call him, uh, seemed easy to put away until the following year when you needed him again. And uh, strangely enough, when, when you actually read Luke 2, which is what we're doing this morning, um, uh, he doesn't let you get away with that. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't become a Christian until later in life, um, but I, remember, I still remember the first time uh, I picked up the New Testament to read it, um, not a believer, and I, 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 I thought, oh, this is what educated people do, right? You, you know, Bible is, fa- is famous, influential literature, so you should know it, you should read it. And I picked it up, expecting wholeheartedly to, to meet that warm and fuzzy Jesus of my childhood, and I found something totally different. And the story of Christmas is not about a, a baby, and not ultimately. It's about the king of the universe, at least according to Luke. Uh, the king of the Jews that they had longed and waited for for their entire history. And if you've been with us in the Old Testament, you know that. And when we get to Luke chapter 2, the Jewish faithful who've waited for so long uh, for this king, they come rushing to Bethlehem, right, looking for the savior of the world, and instead they find this baby in, in what basically is a feeding trough. They don't find a Caesar, right? They don't find a military leader. Uh, who could save them from Roman oppression. We'll talk a little bit about, about what's going on there. Uh, he's not a political animal. He's, not a, he's, not, he's, he's someone who can't uh, free them politically. They just, they just find Jesus. And Jesus isn't cute, and Jesus isn't powerful, at least in the terms, the, the way we understand power. He's confusing, and he's different at Christmas time. And uh, Jesus is a completely different kind of king, which is what Messiah means. Completely different kind of king. Uh, than we, than we often understand. And Luke is deliberately showing us how different Jesus truly is. And uh, Luke will show us three things. If you're taking notes, these are, these are, this is where we're going. Three things that make Jesus different. And, and if we want to understand him, we've got to get these three things, okay? Uh, the first is Jesus has a different kind of glory than most kings. A different kind of glory. A different kind of proclamation. And a different kind of destiny. Different kind of glory, different kind of proclamation, different kind of destiny. And, and, and we'll work through those this morning. So first, Jesus has a different kind of glory. So if you haven't turned to Luke chapter 2 yet, you can do so now. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke. First book of the, back of the New Testament is Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 2. Uh, Luke begins the story of Jesus' birth this way. These are the first words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So stop there for a second. Um, we need to do a little history lesson. I know, I'm sorry for those of you who don't like history. We need to do a little history lesson to figure out where we, where we are. Um, if you were here last Sunday, we preached on Malachi, the prophet Malachi. And a lot has happened between Malachi and Luke. So uh, when Malachi wrote his book, Israel was still under the captivity of the Persian Empire. And Emperor Cyrus, who is the, who is the emperor of, of Persia, uh, allowed the Jews who were in his captivity to go back to their homeland, Israel, to rebuild it. And that was the group, these people that are rebuilding the land, or the, it's where you get books like Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the group of people Malachi preached to around the 5th century B.C. And uh, several hundred years after Malachi, Alexander the Great, you've probably heard of him, uh, sw- his army swept through this whole region, Asia Minor is the name of the region, which includes Israel. Swept through the whole region, defeated the Persian Empire, and the Greek language, he was Greek, the Greek language became the language of the whole region, which is why 
the New Testament is written in Greek, not Hebrew. Because everybody spoke Greek. And when Alexander died, uh, he had no children. So his four generals, his four most powerful generals, divided his empire among themselves. Uh, which, you know, it doesn't sound like a good idea, and it wasn't a very good idea. So there's a lot of infighting that went on until eventually they, they weakened each other, and eventually Israel, under the leadership of a guy named Judas Maccabeus, you, you might have heard his name before, uh, revolted against their rule, this general's rule, and gained independence for Israel. And this is where the holiday Hanukkah comes from, is this time. And uh, that didn't la- the independence, it didn't last very long, uh, as the power of Rome in the, in the area grew and grew and grew, until eventually around 63 BC, so just about 60 years before Jesus was born, uh, the Roman army conquered Palestine and ended Jewish independence. So now Israel was under Roman oppression from this point on. And a few decades after that, a guy named General Octavian of the Roman Empire defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And there's a famous old movie called Cleopatra with Liz Taylor and Richard Burton. Uh, It was like the Titanic of the day. You know, it was the one that the girls went to see over and over and over again. Uh, Anyway, um, so the whole story about that. So they defeated, he defeated them, General Octavian did, and he he was renamed Caesar Augustus when he became the sole ruler of Rome after defeating them. And it's the same Caesar Augustus of Luke chapter 2. His name means king of glory or king of greatness. And Augustus, like most political leaders, loved taxes. Loved taxes. Uh, He's actually known for this. He created a policy in his rule to regularly census his kingdom for tax purposes. Because a lot has changed since Rome ruled the world, but taxes have not. Um, Taxes have been around a long time. Uh, The booger with his tax law, though, was that uh, in order to do a census, families in Palestine needed to return to their ancestral homeland to, for the census, even if they didn't live there anymore. So we complain, right, about driving to the DMV. Like, we have to go to the government, you know, in order to get what we need. Uh, Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, not, not even married, Mary nine months pregnant, had to travel 80 miles from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south, which is where Joseph's family was from, just to be registered to, to pay taxes. And that's kind of the, where we are here in Luke. And why did I tell you all the, I threw a lot of details at you. Why did I do that? Well, two reasons, actually. The first is that Luke is a good historian. And this is important. In, in our world today, Luke is a good historian because Luke is well-researched here. And the details that he gives us in chapter 2, we can corroborate with other uh, sources of the time to see if he's painting an accurate picture. And he mentions details like Augustus and his well-documented policy of taxes and Quirinius, his governor of Syria, He gives details about the tax law, how it worked at the time, and so on. And lots of scholars have read Luke, and they question the validity of Jesus' birth, and they really question Jesus' life, period. Uh, But uh, they, yeah, they question Jesus altogether. But they, they either say that Luke is fabricating this story, he's lying about Jesus' birth, or they say... He's writing a myth. We're misreading it. This is a myth. This is a fairy tale. This is, this is an inspiring story that Luke is trying to tell to be read symbolically. But I wanted to point out that Luke doesn't let you get away with either of those things. Because everyone knows that you don't give details like Luke is giving if you're lying. If, uh, if you're out late, right, and you come home late, and kids, I don't recommend doing this, but when you come home late and uh, you, don't want, you, you don't want your parents to know where you were, and they start asking you questions like, where were you? You just say, oh, I was just out with friends, right? As vague as possible. Well, what friends? Oh, yeah, oh it's, you know, just so-and-so and not a big deal. We were just here and there, right? Everyone in this room knows that when you lie 
You do not give details until you absolutely have to because details can be checked. Details can be verified, right? Makes sense? If Luke was lying, he wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he would keep it very vague, but he doesn't keep it vague at all. He gives an incredible amount of detail. Detail about tax law, how taxes are collected, how the census was done, and you only give details like that if you think they're true and that they can be verified. Nor is this a myth. Myths don't begin in real history. You've read a myth before. They always begin long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Or once upon a time. No reference is ever made to time or history. That's how you know as a reader or a listener that what you're about to hear did not happen. But Luke begins with the reign of Caesar and the registration of Quirinius in the first century Palestine. That's the detail he gives. This is real history. So reason number one, Luke's a good historian. Reason number two is that Luke is, is saying something profound. It's a subtle statement, but something, a theologically profound statement in the telling of, of this story. And he is cluing us in about what kind of glory Jesus will have, what kind of glory he'll have. Here's what Luke's showing us. Uh, Augustus is supposedly, right, the most powerful man in the world at this time. In all of his glory, he lifts his finger in Rome and 1,500 miles away, in an obscure little province that Caesar will never visit, a poverty-stricken family that, that Caesar will never meet or know, undertake this hazardous journey to a backwater city in the middle of nowhere called Bethlehem. And oh, by the way, that city, Bethlehem, just happens to be mentioned in an ancient Hebrew prophecy about the coming Messiah, God's true king. You can see it in Micah chapter 5. You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And Israel shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah chapter 5. And Luke, in his own subtle way, is asking us a very profound question in the way he tells this story. He's saying, Augustus ordered a census. But who is really in control here? Whose will is being done? And this is glory. When you, when you understand it that way, this is glory and power and majesty of another kind from Caesar. And all the kings and all the leaders of human history, for that matter, Caesar's playing checkers, right? He's ordering a census. God's playing chess. Caesar can order you to do something. God can use you no matter what you want to do. Caesar holds a nation in his hand and God holds the entire universe. Luke is saying, Caesar can levy a tax on you, but God can change history in Luke chapter 2. Caesar Augustus' glory is nothing compared with God's or compared with Jesus, his son. And to say Luke is teaching us that Jesus is more powerful than Caesar is the understatement to end all understatements. Jesus is a king of another kind entirely. It's different. And yet, and this is the truly shocking part of what Luke is telling us, he will dis- Jesus will display his glory in the most depressing way possible. Depressing. And this tells us something profound about Jesus' glory. And so think again of the details that God managed to orchestrate to get Jesus to Bethlehem. And not even just uh, the, with the tax registration itself, right? Getting, getting Augustus into power, getting Rome into power with their unique taxing structure, and back and back and back and back into history, farther and farther back. What does God have to do to make this happen? 
Think of all the details God has to keep straight to get Mary and Joseph and Jesus where we find them in Luke chapter 2. And at this point, it's pretty clear, right? God could do anything. He could do anything. God has trumped the will of the most powerful empire in the world. Caesar is a pawn in God's hand. He crafted thousands of years of history to culminate in this one moment of Jesus' birth that the entire Bible has been pointing to. Every commandment, every prophecy, every story. And we see now that there's nothing God can't do, but then we read these words in Luke chapter 2. And while they were there, that is Bethlehem, the time came for her, Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And it's like, what? (laughs) Of all the things God forgot to do, he didn't call ahead and make a reservation at the inn for the birth of his son. And I mean, for for thousands of years, people have tried to remove the tension of this story. And basically, we've sentimentalized this moment of Jesus' birth to make it friendly, to make it easier to swallow. And uh, I I don't want to be too much of a Debbie Downer, but you look at a, a nativity scene like this, and And it's happy, right? Everybody's happy. Mary looks great, right? (laughs) Mothers, mothers, by the way, have picked up on this a long time ago, that Mary would never look this happy. Um, Right? The the indirect lighting's perfect. This is, but but this is, let's be realistic. This, This is not material for a greeting card. Remove thousands of years of Christian history and tradition and commercialization, right, of our culture. This is a story about a baby and a family so poor that they have a child outside with animals and everything that goes with animals. And after he's born, the only place to put him to keep him out of harm's way is a scratchy wooden box feeding trough. And frankly, this will be Jesus' life in a nutshell. If you've read the New Testament, you know this about Jesus. He will be, he's poor, he is rejected, he is an outcast. This, in a nutshell, you're seeing it right now. There it is. Merry Christmas to you. And it's not cute. It's sad. It's depressing. It's tragic. But it's glorious. It's glorious. At least that's what the angels seem to think, right? In verse 14 of chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest. It's how they see what's happening. And glory, right, is this funny word. It can mean a lot of different things. Uh, but in essence, someone's glory is the thing about them that reveals the most about them. That's someone's glory. So a king's glory might be some kind of architectural feat that happened during his reign, or a military victory, uh, or a beautiful statue made in their honor, right? Something that summarizes their power and their achievements, who they are and what they stood for. That's their glory. And in the Bible, God's glory gets talked about a lot. And the whole created world, according to Scripture, is God's glory. It reveals who he is, his power, his might, his wisdom, his beauty. Psalm 90 is is one of the best examples. The heavens declare the glory of God. The power of the sun declares God's glory. The expanse of the universe, the innumerable stars. The complexity of the human cell, right? Creation, top to bottom. That's God's glory. And that makes sense, right? That's fitting for the king of the universe, for that to be his glory. But here in Luke 2... The angels say that Jesus' birth, that God becoming man, the incarnation, as it's called by theologians, God born in a manger, that is God's highest glory. Highest glory. In other words, 
this little baby outside in a manger, not even a roof over his head, no doubt screaming at the top of his lungs, because that's what babies do. Luke is saying reveals more about God and his glory and his reign than anything that has come before or will come after. This moment. Caesar comes with power and wealth and prestige. His glory, his might makes right. That's who he is. Jesus's is completely different. It is power in weakness. It is freedom in submission. It is God made flesh, made vulnerable, made killable. That's God's glory, and it's glory of another kind. Something that the world has never truly grasped. And the implications of the incarnation are basically inexhaustible. <laughs> but uh, there are at least two things I want to touch on here as they relate to Jesus' glory in the incarnation. The first is that the incarnation explains everything the Bible says about power and everything the Bible says about suffering. Those are the two, the two implications, okay? So first, power. God shows us here that unlike the tyrants and rulers of human history, the most powerful thing you can do is give your power away. Give it away. Because Jesus' ultimate glory is in emptying himself of divine power and becoming human. And a poor outcast, no less, not just human. And this is how, as Jesus later teaches, this is how he can say the first are last and the last are first. If, you, if you've read Jesus, he says that. Or the greatest among you is the least among you. Because in our universe, God, Jesus is showing us, in our universe, the reality is that the only way up is down. Now we're going to have a whole sermon on that next week. I don't want to step on Gabe's toes, so that's enough for now. Um, I see him getting nervous. The second implication, the second implication, suffering. This explains everything about suffering. God could have planned to have Jesus born any time, anywhere, any way that he wanted to. He could have. In God's obviously unlimited power and wisdom, he could have made Jesus the next Caesar. Wouldn't that have been easier? <laughs> God, if you want to change the world, wouldn't that have been more efficient, more effective? And most of us, we use our power, we use our influence to avoid pain and to avoid difficulty. God in Christ is the only person I know who uses his power to enter pain, to experience difficulty. He counts on it. He plans on it. Jesus will be a poor Jewish carpenter. He will be born to an unwed mother. He probably gets made fun of in school. He gets his heart broken by a crush. He gets in trouble with his parents. We actually read about some of these things. In other words, God enters the world and becomes just like us. He's just like us. He endures all the pain and confusion and abandonment and loneliness and grief that we experience, but he does it willingly. Jesus' glory, the incarnation, does not explain why bad things happen. It doesn't. But it shows God cares and that he's doing something about it. He knows exactly what it is like to be hurt and to lose a loved one and to feel alone. He knows. He knows. And that is his glory. That is what he is most proud of. That has been his plan all along. Luke's story uh, shows us a lot about Jesus' glory, how different it is, right, from everything else we've experienced, from anything like a Caesar or king has ever had. But the contrast doesn't end there. So Jesus has a different kind of glory in the incarnation, but he also has a different kind of proclamation, different kind of proclamation. And uh, let me explain what I mean by that. In the ancient world, uh, news did not travel fast like it does today. Uh, So when the king or the emperor, right, in the center of power had a 
had something he wanted to get done or something he wanted to say, he would then send messengers to every province in his kingdom to pass that on. And those messengers would find other messengers who would then go out into the city, right, and spread the word. And these decrees of the king were read in public, like a marketplace, so that the general population could hear what was happening. And every king had a proclamation read at the beginning of those decrees. And it was always the same thing. It was like their logo. It was their trademark. It was how they introduced themselves. And Caesar Augustus's was something like this. Glory to Augustus Caesar, God in the highest. They thought that Caesar was divine. God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those with whom he is well pleased. And if those words sound familiar, it's because they are an almost exact quote of the angel's proclamation about Jesus. In verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And Luke is purposely juxtaposing Caesar's proclamation and Jesus's. Now, why is he doing that? Well, because in the the ancient Roman world, and even today, if you think about it, people have looked to leaders, and they've looked to governments, and they've looked to technology. They've looked to innovation to save the world and to bring peace. But it's never worked. And history, right, is well documents this very well. You see, we, li- we live today, right, in a disturbing world, and full of dangers and fears that we can hardly even think about without becoming overwhelmed. That's why we don't think about them. I mean, right now, our country is on the brink of a possible war, and, and who knows what that could mean for us, right? And then there's the threat of terrorism or the doomsday prophecies about global warming or economy could bottom out at any moment. And just beneath the surface of our society today is a tremendous fear that we aren't going to make it. It's there. It is. And you won't, you won't hear this uh, out loud, but behind every political campaign and behind every scientific discovery and behind every technological innovation is a promise of peace and salvation. Because the assumption driving all of these things is this. If we can just get the right person in office, if we can just get the right law passed, if we can just make a little more money, if we could just cure cancer, or we could become a little more efficient as a society, if we could harness a little more power, then we'll be safe. Then we'll be okay. Then there will be true peace on earth. But let me tell you, this is the same thinking in the Roman Empire at the time. Same thinking. The Roman government was, relatively speaking, the most advanced society the world had known to that point. There was an unprecedented peace in the empire. It was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And the infrastructure, the roads, the bridges, the aqueducts, the technology was, was far superior to anything else around Rome. The military seemed invincible. There's no one who could stand in their way. And Caesar was like a savior. I mean, they called him that. He's a savior. And yet the angels in Luke 2 are basically saying that Caesar and governments like his and all that he represents and the salvation that he offers is a cheap imitation of what Jesus has come to do. Yes, Caesar brought peace to the Roman world for a little while. It didn't last too long. But only through oppression and military conquest and the systemic execution and intimidation of his enemies. That's how he achieved peace. Yes, Caesar had good news to share, but it was only good news for the people on his side who agreed with him, who benefited from him, and who had something to offer him. But Jesus' proclamation, his good news, is not for some people for a short time, it is for all people for all time. 
Because Jesus is the only king who came blessing and not fighting and not killing his enemies. The only king. Jesus is the only king who came not simply to side with the rich and the powerful, but identified himself, gave himself away to the poor, to the outcast, to the foreigner, to the widow. The people that governments and kings have always tried to avoid. And I mean, look at the people around for Jesus' birth when you read Luke chapter 2. Do you see a king there? Do you see a priest there? Do you you see one noteworthy person there for Jesus' birth? Well, no, you don't. When Prince William and Kate had their baby, right? We all remember that. And he isn't even real royal. He doesn't even have any real power. (laughs) He's He's a figurehead. But when he was born, the entire world watched. When the king of the universe was born, the only people there to see him were some shepherds. And these, these are people who are considered dirty and unworthy. It was not a desirable job. It was not an important job as far as society was concerned. When God's son is born in chapter 2, verse 8, right? This moment that will change history forever. Nothing will be the same again. The angels immediately run out and tell the most unimportant people they can find. <laughs> these shepherds. Why? Why? Because Jesus' kingdom, his proclamation of peace, is for everyone. Especially the people that no one is looking out for and that nobody cares about. And his peace is not in his military strength or his political savvy or his fundraising ability. Jesus offers peace with God himself. To reconcile us back to our Father, to address our deepest needs as human beings. No king can offer what he does. No king can offer what he does. His proclamation of salvation and peace are of another kind than Caesar. And it's for a completely different kind of person. But there's something else different about Jesus. Jesus has a different glory. He brings a different proclamation, but he also has a very different destiny as a king. And uh, Jesus' destiny is only hinted at in Luke chapter 2. But Luke is very intentional here. In in chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus enters the world this way. Here's what Luke says. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Pay attention. Wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. But then in Luke 23, 53, near the end of the book, this is how Jesus leaves the world. This is how he dies. Then Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, which was still hanging on a cross. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb. Jesus is born in obscurity. He's wrapped in a makeshift swaddle and laid in a manger because he couldn't afford the inn. Jesus dies in shame, wrapped in a linen shroud and laid in someone else's tomb because he couldn't afford his own. Now, when Caesar Augustus died, there was an empire-wide funeral. Everybody paid their respects. There were statues made, there were artists commissioned, there were songs written, there were books inscribed, I'm sure, in his honor. They renamed cities and roads for him, and they buried his body in the finest tomb with the finest clothes, because that's how a king's supposed to die, right? When Jesus dies, the most excruciating and humiliating death possible He dies on a Roman cross like thousands of other unfortunate souls during the Roman reign. One among many. The only inscription for him is a sarcastic sign. If you know the story, it's put above his cross. It says, 
the king of the Jews while he's dying. He's stripped naked, and his only possession is his tunic, and it's auctioned off in front of him while he dies. And no one outside of Palestine will know his name. And his body was not even prepared for burial before it was placed in a tomb. And no one, none of his followers saw this coming. None of them. This could not be the destiny of God's king. Surely this is not how God would establish his reign on earth. You can almost hear them screaming, this is, this is a mistake. This is wrong. But it's exactly the way it had to be. This is exactly the way it had to be. This is what Luke is telling us. He's hinting at it in chapter 2. And keep this in mind. No one today remembers Caesar's Augustus unless they have a PhD in Roman history. Nobody knows this guy. In fact, if, if you know Caesar Augustus, it's because he was the emperor at the time when Jesus was born. It was Jesus' glory and his proclamation and his destiny that would change the world more than any figure in human history. It's Jesus' life and not Caesar's that's come to define our calendars. It's become the dividing line of history itself, right? A.D., B.C., it's all around the birth of Jesus. Every time you make an appointment, you're reminded that it's been roughly 2,000 years since Jesus, not Caesar, was born. And it's Jesus' birthday and not Caesar's that is celebrated on every continent on the globe. And it is Jesus' name and legacy, not Caesar's, that is proclaimed all over the world in every tongue and tribe and nation. Why? What's the difference? Because Jesus was king of another kind. Caesar conquered nations, but only Jesus conquers death and his resurrection. And Caesar can save you from your enemies, but only Jesus can save you from yourself, which we all desperately need. Caesar can forgive your debts, but Jesus can forgive your sins. And Caesar can coerce your cooperation, right? He can threaten you. But only Jesus on the cross can win your love, can win your love and win your heart. And what Jesus wants more than anything, more than his power and his glory that he had before he became a human being, is your love. It's your love. And he gave, up, he gave up everything to get it. And that, if Luke has taught us anything, that is real power. That is the stuff that holds the universe together. That is the peace and security. That's the kingdom that we've all been waiting for, that we've been striving for. The good news is, the good news of Luke chapter 2 is that this king and his infinite love is available to anyone and everyone for all time. He was not the king we expected. He wasn't then. He, he still isn't now. But his reign is the only one that we desperately need, and it's available here. It's available now in your life if you accept it. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the gift of your son and the reign that he brings. And Father, we confess how quickly we abandon him, how quickly we turn to something that we think is more powerful than he is, something we think loves us more than he does, but, if, but your word teaches us there is nothing more powerful than him. 
There is nothing more loving than him. There is no one who has given up as much as he has for us. So I pray that empower us today to be the hands and feet of your son in this world. And send us out in his name. Amen. So every week uh, we gather as a church at the Lord's table to remember Jesus' reign as our king and the sacrifice that he made for us to enter his kingdom. And he's the only king to take bread. He's the only king to take bread and to take wine and say, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for you. He's the only king who, who fights our battles for us. And if you follow Jesus, if you've given your life to him, you're welcome to come to the table now. There are two tables in the back here. If not, if you've not followed Jesus yet, please consider what you've heard this morning uh, and, and take your time to do that. If you have questions about that, what it means to follow Jesus or know him, I know Gabe and I will be here after service. We would love to talk to you about that. So please pull us aside. Please come to the table in groups of, of four to six. We try to gather as a, as a family together. I know sometimes it feels a little awkward, but it, it wouldn't be family affair if it weren't a little awkward. Um, we want to remind ourselves that, right? We want to remind ourselves this isn't just about me and Jesus, it's about us and Jesus. So come in groups of four to six. Uh, I think you exit uh, to the side and go around to the table and, and enter back in in the front. So whenever you're ready, please, please come to the Lord's table.